provides perspectives on the news outside the narrow confines of the mainstream media. I'm your host, Charles Dunaway. Today, I thought I would try something a little different, and that is to talk about a handful of the key problems that we are facing in the world today um, and the U.S. response to them, or lack of response to them, and gaining all of this information, of course, outside the mainstream media so that we can try to get a different perspective on what's going on, since, um, frankly, in foreign policy issues, uh, you can pretty much guarantee the mainstream media is not telling you uh, the real story, or at least all of the story. And one of the examples of that, where we'll start today, is with the Iran nuclear talks, or the talks to um, to revive the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, <clears throat> which was the uh, treaty that uh, President Obama administration negotiated with the Iranian government um, designed to prevent them from gaining a nuclear weapon. A lot of stories came out on this um, Sunday. Here's one from the uh, official Iran Republic News Agency that says the third day of the fourth round of Vienna talks underway today is going to have promising prospects, according to the head of Iranian president's office, Mahmoud Vaizi. Negotiations are being pursued under the supervision of the country's authorities with the aim of removing the imposed sanctions and restoring the rights of the Iranian people. The talks have made good progress, he said, adding that although the process is difficult, given the previous talks, its prospects could be promising. The English-language Iranian newspaper, the Tehran Times, reported also today, on Sunday, that Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif called on the United States to end its lawlessness by rejoining the 2015 nuclear deal abandoned by former President Donald Trump on May 8, 2018. Zarif recalled how the controversy over the nuclear deal, officially known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, started in the first place. The foreign minister called Trump a buffoon who reneged on U.S. obligations under the nuclear deal. Zarif said, quote, As we try to revive JCPOA in Vienna, it is necessary to remember how it all started. Three years ago today, a disgraced buffoon violated U.S. obligations under the JCPOA and the U.N. Security Council Resolution 2231. Today, the new president has to decide whether the U.S. continues lawlessness or adheres to law. The onus is on the U.S., not Iran. A senior Iranian lawmaker, Mujtaba Zolnuri, who is the head of the Iranian parliament's National Security and Foreign Policy Committee, said that the nuclear talks in Vienna have so far failed to produce a concrete result and they have become draining. Solnuri said, quote, We hope that the lock of negotiations will be broken and the path will continue quickly, 
But at the same time, if this lock is not broken by May 24th, Iran will implement a parliamentary nuclear law obligating the Iranian government to rapidly increase nuclear activities and restrict the International Atomic Energy Agency's access to Iranian nuclear facilities. The nuclear law, officially called the Strategic Action to Lift Sanctions and Protect the Nation's Rights, outlines a step-by-step -step strategy for Iran to increase nuclear activities in case the West fails to honor its obligations under the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. If this lock is not broken, according to the strategic law for lifting sanctions, he said, the opportunity for the West to fulfill its obligations will end on May 24th, and the Islamic Republic of Iran will take action in accordance with this law. Zolnuri said the first thing Iran will do, if the talks fail, is the non-implementation of the additional protocol to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, or NPT. At presently, the agency's offline cameras are operating in the country's nuclear facilities. If the negotiations are unlocked by May 24th, the agency can access the content of these cameras. But if the negotiations are not concluded by May 24th, the content of the cameras will be deleted and they will be turned off. So here we have from both the foreign minister and the effectively the head of the parliament's foreign policy committee making the case that Iran is has the moral high ground here is the U.S. under its uh, previous buffoon who, uh, who left this agreement <clears throat> and who failed to live up to their end of the bargain. So it's up to them to come back, um, not not the um, the Iranians. As for the U.S. side of this um, whole negotiation, there was a recent article by Phil Giraldi, former CIA agent and regular contributor to a number of websites online uh, and who has been a guest on this program in the past. He has a new article um, that came out, I believe, uh, last week entitled, Oh, What a Lovely New War, False Flagging in the Middle East. Giraldi begins by saying that there's been virtually no American media coverage of last week's arrival of a senior Israeli delegation in Washington to discuss Iran. The delegation included the head of the Israeli External Intelligence Service, Mossad, Yossi Cohen, and Israel's National Security Advisor, Meir Ben Shabbat. Their itinerary included briefings at the Pentagon and also with National Security and State Department officials at the White House. Lest there be any confusion about the mission of the delegation, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced unambiguously that his team would be explaining why Iran should not be trusted and that any agreement with it is fundamentally flawed in that it opens the door to a nuclear weapon for the Iranians when the deal enters its sunset phase after 10 years. Consequently, the Israelis pushed hard for maintaining U.S. non-participation in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action nuclear inspection program that was established in 2015. The secondary message from Jerusalem was that U.S. extreme pressure sanctions should remain in place and should, if anything, be made more punitive. The Israeli team produced 
what it called intelligence to help make their case, but those of us experienced in information provided by America's best friend and closest ally, Israel, would probably agree that it tends to be highly politicized and often lacking any credible sourcing. In short, it's frequently little more than fabricated material that's only intended to influence gullible U.S. government officials. Geraldi goes on to say that Biden is reportedly now willing to cancel sanctions against the petroleum and banking sectors, which Iran has cited as a precondition for moving talks currently taking place in Austria forward. Nevertheless, there are certainly a number of high officials in Washington that favor retaining a hard line against Iran along the lines Israel is demanding in the belief that the pressure will make Iran concede on all points. They include the three most senior relevant officials at the State Department, all of whom are Jewish and Zionists, as well as many other appointees at the Pentagon and National Security Council. To return to the JCPOA, some in both Washington and Jerusalem are demanding that Iran also make additional concessions that go beyond the nuclear program to include abandoning its ballistic missile program and ceasing its so-called interference and alleged terrorist support outside its borders in the Middle East. Those demands are deal-breakers for Iran, and the intent is clearly to maintain a high level of aggression directed against the Islamic Republic, while also labeling the country as a pariah. Former senior Israeli diplomat Dori Gold has also come out with another Israeli argument that's being replayed by its supporters in the U.S. And we quote from Gold, There is a Real dilemma, because if you remove sanctions, there's a huge windfall of funds that becomes available for terrorist activities in the Middle East and around the world. End quote. Of course, that money belongs to Iran, having been frozen by the United States, and how one defines a terrorist is dependent upon whom one is seeking to defame. Gold clearly has no problem with Israeli support of ISIS and al-Qaeda-linked groups, He's referring, of course, to Hezbollah, which successfully resisted the Israeli occupation of South Lebanon, and which most of the world currently regards as a legitimate party in the Lebanese government. The danger is, of course, that Israel is working hard to suck the United States into a war of its own choosing against Iran, and it has a fifth column of allies in the United States that are willing to do its bidding by fair means or foul. Its leadership may be thinking that it is now or never to take the steps to initiate an armed conflict, and that just might mean staging a false flag attack on a U.S. merchant or warship, a diplomatic mission, or a vulnerable military base. The Middle East region is certainly a target-rich environment for those seeking to identify American facilities and vessels, so it wouldn't be that hard to set up something that could appear to be an Iranian act of aggression that Joe Biden would have to respond to, and he would find plenty of support, both in Congress and the media, to do so. Even if the American counterattack were strictly limited, the prime beneficiary would, of course, be Israel which would have made the possibility of any U.S.-Iranian agreement go away forever. As is frequently the case when Washington gets entangled with Israel's perceived interests, this would not be good for the United States and would keep the American forces locked into the Middle East region for many years to come. The question becomes, if Netanyahu pulls a trick and everyone knows or at least suspects that it's fraudulent, 
Will Biden, under pressure from the powerful Israel lobby in the U.S., take the bait? It will be a true test of whether any president will be able to stand up to the Israelis and tell that country hell no. It hasn't happened yet, but hope springs eternal. And that was from an article by Philip Giraldi, PhD, who is executive director of the Council for the National Interest and is a former um, longtime CIA agent. That's probably some things that you haven't been hearing all this time about what's going on in Iran and with the Iran agreement. Meanwhile, of course, Iran itself is suffering under uh, very, very harsh sanctions and that have curtailed the um, availability of food, availability of medicine for the people, and sent the Iranian economy into a tailspin. What's going to happen, of course, is that Iran will thus be forced into uh, closer relationships with China and Russia um, and with other nations who are outside the U.S. frame of influence, shall we say, those who are not U.S. puppets. To a great extent, the initial... Iran nuclear deal itself and all of this discussion is really um, based on the desire of Israel to become the regional hegemon and to deny Iran that possibility. Um, it has really little to do with nuclear weapons, which of which Iran has none and of which Israel has many. So if we were really... Um, if we're really looking at this situation on this Iran nuclear deal, we really have to look at Israel. And there's other news out of Israel over the last couple of weeks having to do with a neighborhood in East Jerusalem called Sheikh Jarrah. And this gets reported in the U.S. media mostly as conflicts between Palestinians and Israeli soldiers. Um with no designation of who started what or why anyone is doing what they're doing, and uh, and with the implication that these are sort of equally matched um, forces uh, that are just having a conflict with one another. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. So let me read a couple of articles here. Uh, this one is from the very excellent Middle East Eye at MiddleEastEye.net. Um, and this is an article based on their own reporting uh, dated the 5th of May. Israeli military police stormed Palestinian houses in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of occupied East Jerusalem on Tuesday evening, attacking activists taking part in a sit-in solidarity protest with residents who are facing imminent eviction. Three Palestinians were arrested and six injured, local sources said. The Red Crescent reported that two Palestinians had been hospitalized. Since the beginning of 2020, Israeli courts have ordered the eviction of 13 Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah, a residential area less than a kilometer away from the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. One resident, Abdel Fattah Iskafi, told Middle East Eye that his family had lived in their home for decades. He said Israeli special forces besieged Sheikh Jarrah in the evening and didn't allow anyone from outside, especially the solidarity activists, to enter it. 
This was after the iftar of Ramadan. There were dozens of police and special forces, at least 60 of them, more than the whole population of Sheikh Jarrah. Iskafi lives in this area with 14 members of his extended family, including children and grandchildren, and he confirmed that they would remain there. He said, quote, We're not going to leave our home. We will remain until the last breath. No one can take away my memories and my heart from my home. We are not going to move anywhere, and despite the stress and tough conditions, we're trying to continue our normal daily life there. And then Middle East Eye goes on to give us a little bit of the historical background here. There are a number of Palestinian families living in homes built in Sheikh Jarrah in 1956, with the approval of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, or UNRWA, and the Jordanian authorities who ruled the West Bank and East Jerusalem from 1948 until 1967 when Israel captured them. Since Israel seized East Jerusalem in the 1967 war, Israeli settler organizations have claimed ownership of the land in Sheikh Jarrah and have filed multiple successful lawsuits to evict Palestinians from the neighborhood since 1972. In 2002, 43 Palestinians were evicted from the area and Israeli settlers took over their properties. In 2008, the Hanun and Gwahibui families were evicted, and in 2017, the Shamanishna family was removed from their home by Israeli settlers. R.F. Hamad, whose family is facing eviction and who is head of the Sheikh Jarrah Neighborhood Committee, told MEE that Israeli settlers were pushing the Palestinian residents to recognize, quote, their ownership of the land. They want to make us tenants, he said, but this will never happen. They own nothing, and we have the legal documents to prove that. In April, Jordanian Foreign Minister Ayman Safadi visited Ramallah in the occupied West Bank to meet Palestinian Authority officials and hand over documents proving Palestinian ownership of their properties in Sheikh Jarrah in a bid to prevent a new mass eviction. Safadi said, all the documents we hold on property and land in Jerusalem have been passed on to the Palestinian Authority, adding that his government found the documents proving that the Ministry of Development had built those houses and had in 1956 finalized lease agreements for homes in Sheikh Jarrah. The Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah are families who were expelled by Zionist militias from Arab towns and cities which became part of Israel following the 1948 war. Hamad said there is a political decision behind the eviction of Palestinians from Sheikh Jarrah. Israel has a grand strategy to connect east and west in Jerusalem and to remove Palestinians from areas surrounding the old city of Jerusalem to create the so-called Holy Basin and to build 220 settler units in the area. Israel has illegally occupied the West Bank and East Jerusalem, including the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood and the old city of Jerusalem, since the 1967 war. And the latest evictions come as Jerusalem has seen heightened tensions in recent weeks, with far-right Israelis staging marches calling for death to Arabs amid long-standing efforts by Israeli authorities to expand the settlements, which are illegal under international law, in East Jerusalem. Opinion writer Azad Essa 
wrote in the Middle East Eye on May 7th that if there are no consequences for expelling Palestinians from their home, there surely are none for the media's erasure of these illegal acts. As Saw says, over the past week, Jewish settlers with thick Brooklyn accents were caught on camera bullying their way into Palestinian homes in the occupied East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. One settler said to a Palestinian woman whose house was being invaded, if I don't steal your home, someone else will steal it. Israeli police, too, have been seen storming the neighborhood, violently breaking up vigils, beating and choking activists, conducting sit-ins and protests at the displacement of Palestinian refugees living in the area. And on social media, online campaigners have been sharing uh, these stories under the hashtag Save Sheikh Jarrah in a bid to garner international attention and make sure the world bears witness to yet another Israeli crime. Make no mistake, <clears throat> an ethnic cleansing is currently underway in the predominantly Palestinian neighborhood in full view of the world. But in the American mainstream media, it's as if nothing is happening at all. In this parallel universe, the illegal and vicious attempt to remove Palestinians from their homes and the violent action of Israeli forces to halt demonstrations against a recent court order upholding the evictions have been met with a resounding silence. A cursory glance at the New York Times, NPR, CNN, and Time magazine returned no results on the events of the past few days. Instead, they continue to focus primarily on Israel's inability to form a government. And when the evictions and violence inflicted on the Sheikh Jarrah residents have been covered, for example, by the Associated Press, the issue is framed as a quasi-commercial dispute between two parties and described as a long-running legal battle between Palestinians and settlers, conveniently neglecting to note that under international law, Israeli courts do not have the authority to settle civilians in occupied Palestinian territory, while the displacement of those Palestinian families contravenes the fundamentals of international humanitarian law. Considering the ways in which the mainstream U.S. media has historically covered the Israeli occupation of Palestine, using the term clashes even when Israeli mobs have marched to the chant of death to Arabs, as they did last month, or drawing the false equivalences in the levels of violence between occupied and occupier, or the constant justification of Israeli violence as self-defense, even in the thick of an invasion, the lack of coverage of events in Sheikh Jarrah is not altogether surprising. This is the same media, after all, that still chooses to laud Israel's COVID-19 vaccine success while it completely negates its legal responsibilities toward the lives of Palestinians living under its control. One would have thought that given the tumultuous Events of the past year, from the Black Lives Matter movement to the COVID-19 pandemic, which exposed a decrepit and unequal America, the U.S. mainstream media would have shifted gears, rethinking their own complicity or at least exploring American duplicity. But apparently they remain unmoved. Part of the problem is that there's no one to hold Israel to account. Palestinian civil society activists have called upon the International Criminal Court to include the evictions at Sheikh Shara as part of its ongoing investigation, 
but both Israel and the U.S. have rejected the ICC's right to hold Israel to account. The United Nations has been equally pallid on the matter. Its leadership, too, has shown itself barely capable of reiterating its oft-repeated position that, quote, all settlement activities, including the evictions and demolitions, are illegal under international law. Meanwhile, the facts on the ground continue to change. Today, tomorrow, the evictions will continue. More lives destroyed. More homes taken over. And it seems the U.S. mainstream media is well aware that if there are no consequences for displacing and expelling Palestinians from their homes, there are surely no consequences for the media to erase these crimes. Lastly, I'd like to read some excerpts from an essay by Jonathan Cook. Jonathan Cook is a British journalist who has been based in Palestine for the last 20 years and has written numerous books and articles about uh, the Palestinian cause and what's happening in Israel. This article is also from Middle East Eye, which is a good place to keep your eye on the Middle East, certainly. So here's Jonathan Cook. Inside the Israeli parliament and out on the streets of Jerusalem, the forces of unapologetic Jewish supremacism are stirring, as a growing section of Israel's youth tire of the two-faced Jewish nationalism that has held sway in Israel for decades. Last week, Bezalel Shmotrich, leader of the far-right religious Zionism faction, a vital partner if caretaker Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu stands any hope of forming a new government, issued a barely-veiled threat to Israel's large Palestinian minority. Expulsion, he suggested, was looming for these 1.8 million Palestinians, a fifth of the Israeli population who currently enjoy a very degraded form of citizenship. Smutrich's brand of brazen Jewish racism is on the rise after his faction won six mandates in the 120-member parliament in March. And one of those seats is for Itamar Ben-Giver, head of the neo-fascist Jewish Power Party. Ben-Giver's supporters are now in a bullish mood. Yet last month they took to the streets around the occupied old city of Jerusalem, chanting death to Arabs and making good on promises in WhatsApp chats to attack Palestinians and break their faces. These sentiments in the parliament and out on the streets have not emerged out of nowhere. They are as old as Zionism itself. When Israel's first leaders oversaw the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from most of their homeland in 1948 in an act of mass dispossession, Palestinians called their Nakba, or catastrophe. Violence to remove Palestinians has continued to be at the core of the Jewish state-building project ever since. The rationale for the gangs beating up Palestinians in occupied East Jerusalem are the actions pursued more bureaucratically by the Israeli state, its security forces, occupation administrators, and the courts. Last week, that machinery of oppression came under detailed scrutiny and a 213-page report from Human Rights Watch. The leading international human rights group declared that Israel was committing the crime of apartheid as set out in international law. It argued that Israel had met the three conditions of of apartheid in the Rome Statute, the domination of one racial group over another, 
systematic oppression of the marginalized group, and inhumane acts. Those acts include forcible transfer, expropriation of landed property, the creation of separate reserves and ghettos, denial of the right to leave and return to their country, and the denial of the right to a nationality. Only one such act is needed to qualify as the crime of apartheid, but as Human Rights Watch makes clear, Israel is guilty of them all. Well, that's it for this week. Um, Thank you for listening to Wider View, and um, I will look forward to speaking to you next week. Take care. Take care.